we're all like dying because we're trying to breathe up this giant hill because yes Saskatchewan does have one or two hills <laughs> the one hill in Saskatchewan that you raced on it's technically a valley but yes we call it a hill it's that valley hill it's kind of by that tree you know the tree over by the power pole <laughs> welcome to obstacles and opportunities with Lowell and Julie sharing stories empowering mindsets Keely Shaw is here She's a Paralympic cyclist and just won Canada's first medal of the Tokyo Paralympic Games. She has two more races coming up and she graciously took the time to chat with us from Tokyo. Keely's story is a roller coaster. Dreams of playing Olympic hockey, a fall from a horse, a brain injury, and struggles with disordered eating. Keely's determination shines through and once she discovered Parasport, there was no stopping her. She began her cycling career in 2017 and found her first World Championships podium in 2019. Not only is Keely an elite cyclist, she's also working on her PhD, pretty much specializing in sport and chocolate. For real. Keely shared her incredible story with us, as well as valuable lessons learned along the way. Enjoy our conversation and best of luck with your next races, Keely. Keely Shaw. Hello, Keely. Congratulations. Thank you so much. The first medal for the Canadian Paralympic team. Amazing. You were like trending on the Twitter. I know. How wild is that? I have my own Wikipedia page now. <gasps> you are a big deal. Actually, Justin Trudeau tweeted me today. Really? So like, I kind of feel like a big deal in that regard, if we're being honest. You are a big deal. Like, Not only is it super awesome that you have a medal, but the first one of the Tokyo Paralympic Games for Canada. Like, That's a really cool thing that you can always say. And do you have other races that you're preparing for as well? Yeah. So after my pursuit that evening, I packed up and moved over to the road venue. So because our cycling venues are so far away from the village, we're not actually in the village. We have separate satellite villages for each the track and the road race. So after my pursuit, I packed up my bags and I moved over to the Fuji Speedway where we will be racing our time trial on the 31st and our road race on September 2nd. Well, we definitely want to highlight those races. So anybody who's listening to this, please set your PVRs or if that's a thing, uh, be ready to stream and watch that. We're going to be so focused on our screens as we're cheering you on in that TT. What's the distance and how are you feeling about the TT? I rode the TT course for the first time yesterday and it is so much fun. I've been riding it virtually for a little bit. We were lucky enough to have access to the virtual course to ride on our trainers. Oh, fun. But it's not the same at yeah, all. No. There's a decent amount of ascents and descents. There's lots of different corners and a really tight 90 degree corner after a big long hill that you get going like 70k an hour on. And it's so much fun. I'll be doing two laps of the eight kilometer course. So my TT will be 16 kilometers. I don't know really how I feel about it right now, for being honest. I haven't done more than a four-minute effort since September in 2019, so it's going to be different for sure. Training for a pursuit and training for a time trial, there's definitely some carryover. I feel like my fitness is pretty good, so I think I'll put up a good race. Obviously, the goal would be to find another podium, but no matter how the road races go, I'll still be very happy. You still had a pretty good start. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you know if you'll be racing some of the same people then or are there different people for these races now? There'll be a lot of the same and there will also be some new individuals. People that kind of more specialize in that? Yeah, that's right. So we'll probably lose some people who only race on the track, but Got we'll it. also gain some people who only race on the road. So there will be a handful of us who do both. And it's likely going to be the top four from the pursuit will also be the top four on their time trial. 
but we'll also be bringing in some new ladies from other countries that weren't at the track okay. venue. So it'll be nice to see kind of the work that everybody's been putting in since I last saw them in 2019. Yeah. Yeah. You're in this oh, wow. interesting in-between space where you just got on the podium. This was the dream, right? Get to Paralympics and get on the podium. You said all the pain would be worth it when you're standing on the podium. So Keely Shaw, has it been worth it? Oh my God. It's been so incredible. The amount of love I received as soon as I got off my bike from my bronze medal race and you know I did the whole I have to go through the media and then I have to go to the holding area and then all of the formalities were over and I picked up my phone and it was blooded <laughs> and I don't even have my regular phone number right now so it was social media Facebook Instagram Twitter email and I can only imagine what's going to happen when I put my Canadian sim card back in <laughs> That'll be fun. Make sure you have like a coffee and several hours ahead of you before you and, do that. And some Kleenex. Oh, yeah. For all the yeah. tears. Yeah. Maybe towels. Go for the towels. <laughs> yeah, that's what I um, did kind of on Wednesday evening. And even yesterday, I was just kind of scrolling through, reading all the messages. There's no way I can get back to everybody, but I've been reading mm. every single message and my heart is so full. Mm. I can't even begin to explain it. So much love. Yeah. You are a well-loved person. And as a teammate who's raced with you around the world, and I've been on projects with you and my heart is with you. And man, I wish I was there with you in, in Tokyo. <laughs> You'll be there with us in Paris. Paris, absolutely. <laughs> Where can I sign? Where's the dotted line? Um, yes, we will be there in Paris together. And I just want you to paint a picture for me selfishly, but also for the audience. What has it been like in Tokyo, the whole experience thus far? It's been strange, but also almost comforting. So as far as the accommodations, because we're not in the village, it really feels like a typical World Cup, a typical world championship where it's just a bunch of cyclists getting together. And I mean, on that front, it's almost too bad because you don't get to interact with the other sports. And I think that's one of the big benefits of a multi-sports games mm. is you do get to meet up with the botcher players and the wheelchair rugby players and everybody else. Whereas we're kind of in our own little bubble here with the cycling group which again it's kind of nice because it normalizes things a little bit mm -hmm. but at the same time you are missing that aspect of things that being said I feel a lot safer in our little bit of a smaller bubble from a COVID perspective mm -hmm. relative to if we were in the big village where every single athlete from pretty much every other sport is so I would say there's benefits, but I really thought that when I got to the track, I would be able to just ride it like it was the same as any other track while we were training. That's how it felt. Apart from my own house, a velodrome is where I feel most at home right now. Mm -hmm. I've spent so much time on the velodrome and focusing on the track events, especially in the last eight months, that even when everything else is wild, I can get on the track bike and I feel a little bit more grounded. Mm -hmm. And so I was really counting on that. But then when D-Day came, all of that comfort went out the window. All of a sudden, the Paralympic Ajitos are on the track and the camera people are out and Tokyo 2020 is everywhere. And suddenly it kind of hit me. And I think the nerves really got to me for my qualifying race. I felt really good cognitively. Like I felt relatively calm. I have a habit of catastrophizing everything and I wasn't doing that. Nice. So I felt really good. But my somatic anxiety was through the roof. I was vibrating. My heart was pounding. I was clammy. I was sweating. Mm -hmm. And I think that really got to me on my qualifying race and my time showed it. That was not the race I was prepared to do. Yeah. It was still a PB and we came saying we wanted to do a sub 350, which we did, but I had the legs for a 357. 
And so I was really disappointed after that qualifying race. I looked at my coach, Seb, and I said, what happened to my legs? I've been running split times that would have given me a 345, 346 all day in training, and I couldn't even keep it below a 19 second lap. I was heartbroken mm-hmm. and coach kind of looked at me and said, look, this is the Paralympic games. Yeah. This is what happens, but you've got another race to do. So you need to do what you need to do in order to clear your head, recover and bring it out in the bronze medal match. And I think that's what we did. That bronze medal match. Those were the legs I had. That was mm-hmm. the race. I was there to race and it came out when I needed it to the most. And for that, I'll be forever grateful. So did you have any tips or tricks or resources that helped you clear ahead of that so you could focus on the next race? So before we left training camp in Milton, I did a double IP day with about two and a half hours in between races to really try to simulate what it was going to be like at the race. For those who don't realize, you qualify with a time to see if you're in that gold medal match or if you're near the bronze medal. And then you have to race all out again a couple hours later. Like it's hard. So you, you practice that. Yeah. So we did a simulation and the different thing here with other races I've done is our accommodations were too far away that I couldn't actually go back to the hotel between. So I was at the velodrome for probably about six or seven hours that day. Mm -hmm. And so there's still racing going on. The lights in the velodrome are very, very bright, very overstimulating for somebody with a brain injury. Yeah. But because we had practiced it in Milton, I kind of had a plan. I knew what I wanted to eat when I wanted to eat it. I had eye covers on so I could just lay down and block out all the sound. I had my headphones. I think really what helped me was I put a podcast on and tried to do everything but think about cycling I just needed to separate myself a little bit bring myself back down and then as the races were approaching again I have a habit of when I race of documenting what every minute of my day and about the 20 hours prior is going to look like because then I can just go on autopilot Mm -hmm. and I don't have to think about where do I need to be when I don't need to worry about forgetting something or forgetting a certain step So once the race has started to come closer, I can open my book and what do I need to be doing at Mm -hmm. each individual spot? Mm -hmm. I also just took a moment to kind of check in with how do I feel? And I realized that two hours after my race, I was still vibrating. Mm -hmm. So then it was kind of the executive decision. I was a little bit scared to half my caffeine intake for that second race, because I think part of my first race was I was so anxious. And then I put in a bunch of caffeine on top of that. And that probably wasn't the best bet. (sighs) But yeah, I halved my caffeine intake for the second race. And I really just tried to focus, talk with my coach about how do we want to handle this? What kind of gear do we want to put on? How do my legs feel? Mm. We decided that we wanted to try to cut the amount of time between when I finished my warm up and when we raced. So we moved where I warmed up so that I could be closer. I could have about five minutes less of just sitting and waiting, which means five minutes more of warm up. And I think that really helped. And Mm. then when game time came, I didn't even think about my race prior. As soon as my qualifying race was done, I kind of had my however long of pouting and being upset about it. And then I knew I couldn't think about it. It was over. It was done. It was time to move on. Mm -hmm. And not allowing yourself to get pulled into the last race in Milton World Championships missing the podium by 0.0000 something. <laughs> you know what? I was thinking about that. And I've thought about that race almost every day since that happened, because when you lose by 75 one thousandths of a second, <laughs> that's ridiculous. You're not bitter at all. No, I was going to say, lol, don't bring that up. <laughs> no, she, I'm not bringing it up. She, she, uh, she knows. <laughs> I looked at my coach kind of after I was done pouting from my qualifying. And before I was really starting to focus in, I looked at him and I said, I'm so tired of finishing fourth. Yeah. 
fourth is the absolute worst position. Yeah. So I was thinking about that. I wasn't festering on it, but it was definitely in the back of my mind yeah. because I knew that I had the race. I knew I had the legs and I just really wanted to leave it out on the track. So you're in the start gate, ready for your race, your competition, Australia's and the other start gate and Sebastian coach Sebastian is there with you, setting you up. You say something. I couldn't read your lips. What were you saying before? And do you remember? I told him I got this. I got this. Uh-huh. Again, I knew I had the legs, especially because I didn't perform what I needed to in the qualifier. I knew I didn't burn all the matches. I broke down my pursuit. What do I need to do every single lap? And I executed. Mm -hmm. I didn't get to see your race live. So when I watched it, I knew that you got bronze. I knew that you won that race, but still I cried. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) it was very emotional still. So while you were racing, did you know how close it was and that you were ahead? I had no idea. I definitely felt myself slowing down in the last three laps. But as I was coming around my last corner, I hadn't heard the gun saying that Meg had passed yet. So I knew that I just had to keep pushing. And even after I went across the line and the gun went off, I was really hesitant to celebrate because in Milton in 2020, the gun went off as I crossed the line, but it went off 75 thousandths of a second before I crossed the line. (laughs) So there was about four seconds when the gun went off or I guess it was, she was about a second behind me. It felt like four seconds (laughs) when the second gun went off and I realized that I'd won. Mm. Wow. And then what were you like? Oh, finally not fourth. (laughs) Yeah. I really wanted to celebrate, put my arms up, but I also knew that if I did that, I was going to crash my bike. (laughs) I was really just focused on trying to stop the bike because at that point my legs are so tired. Mm -hmm. And the only way you can stop Mm -hmm. a track bike is to kind of resist the pedals as they come forward but my legs were so tired that I couldn't really resist the pedal. So I was trying to figure out how I was going to stop to get off the track. So the next race could start. Yeah. Many people don't know to stop. You have to backpedal and then you have to get off the track quick. Cause there's a lot of races going on. So you come down onto the apron and you slow down and grab the edge. But for you, you fatigue, your left side is a lot weaker at that point. You have no strength to backpedal. So it's really hard to stop without those brakes. The other thing is, is that after that type of effort, and especially the stress of a competition, I pretty much lose complete control over the left side of my body. So even Uh getting off the bike to walk isn't an option. So I have to like try to time it to get somebody to catch me. And then they roll me down. And at the games, you have to go through the media pits immediately after your race. You can't cool down or anything first. So they get off the bike and then I've got to get my shoes off. Because if I try to walk at that point with my cycling shoes on, I'm going to break my ankle. And then I kind of do this super awkward, like half walk, half drag, mobility gate type thing over to the media wait for them to do their thing, try to get back to the pits, have the physio do what he can to make my body stop writhing, get back on the bike, cool down and get ready for the next steps. I want to check in to what Keely says to herself in those last three laps. In an individual pursuit, you're going out so hard and those last three laps are near blackout. What do you do? What do you say? How do you get through those? All I'm thinking at that point is you need to dig, you need to drive, I'm usually pretty good where I can almost get into a Zen mode while I race. I can really get into that flow state most of the time. So I'm not really feeling my legs. I just know that they're not really working that well. (laughs) I'm trying so hard to push, but I just can't. But in that last little bit, when I know I've got three laps to go, two laps to go, it's just a matter of dig. And I try to focus a little bit on getting smaller and more aerodynamic to get every millisecond that I can out of those last couple of races and just really putting it all out there. Because at the end of the day, a pursuit, it's kind of who can suffer the longest. Yeah. Yeah. So you've alluded to the weakness on your left side. 
let's take this back to your, okay, first of all, you are a farm girl from Saskatchewan as is my mom. And so already you are her favorite person, maybe even more so than me. (laughs) And hockey was your life. Take it from there. Yeah. So I grew up in my town had 500 people in it. I went to a school that had 170 kids in it from kindergarten to grade 12. I was always an active kid. I was always involved in sports. So I took part in pretty much every sport that was offered within a 40 kilometer radius of my hometown. So I played volleyball. I played basketball. I played badminton. I raced motocross. I played hockey. I played soccer. You name it. I, I at least tried it. Yeah. But hockey really was my first true love. I told my mom when I was 10 that I wanted to be Haley Wickenheiser. I wanted to play on the Canadian national hockey team. and I wanted to go to the Olympics. When I was 15, all of these things started to fall into place where I thought maybe this is a doable dream. I just made a double A hockey team. I was being scouted for the triple A teams. I was starting to think of what can I do to get a scholarship to play hockey somewhere. But then in November of 2009, I fell off my horse and I broke a blood vessel in my brain. So my parents raised elk on their little hobby farm. And in November, that's kind of the time of year where there's not any snow on the ground yet for them to eat to get their water. But there's usually not any laying water either. So we have to haul out water to them. And I was going to go out to check the elk for water that evening. It was a super mild day for early November. So I thought taking the horse would be a great plan. So I hopped on my horse and because it was such a short ride, I didn't bother putting a saddle on. I often didn't when I was doing something short like that. And because it was so nice, I decided to take a slightly longer route than we normally would. And at one point, I guess my horse just decided he didn't want to be there anymore. We didn't have the other horse, but he was a little bit lonely. It was a different route than he was used to, which he wasn't super keen on. And he just wanted to go home. So at one point, Bud, my horse, just took off. He didn't buck or anything. He just kind of bolted. And I more or less just slid off and hit the ground. I was knocked unconscious, but I remember waking up to my cell phone ringing. My dad was calling me because my horse was home, but I was not. Mm. They knew I had a concussion. So we went to the hospital in the town over and they did all their tests. They did their x-rays, what have you, confirmed the diagnosis of a concussion, gave you this list of symptoms to watch for. And they said, if any of these come up, give us a call. So we go home. And I remember getting up from the table that evening and the world started spinning. That's actually the last thing I remember from that day. So after that happened, mom called the hospital and the hospital said, nope, she's fine. Just watch her. So we go on with our day. And I guess later that evening, I started getting really disoriented. So I didn't know what day it was. I didn't know kind of what was on the agenda for tomorrow. What do we need to do? So once again, mom called the hospital and they said, nope, she's fine. Just watch her. I think my mother's intuition must have been on point because she slept with me that night because something didn't feel right to her. And apparently I woke her up in the middle of the night because I had to go to the bathroom, but I couldn't move. So obviously at that point, I'm not fine. They don't just need to watch me. Mm -hmm. They called the ambulance who loaded me up, told my parents to meet them at Regina General Hospital, but don't try to keep up. Once I got to Regina, they did a CT scan, found a bleed deep within my brain where the neurosurgeon said he was going to do everything within his power not to have to go in to stop it because he knew that if he had to go in to clot it manually, Uh, there was no way he was getting out of there without damaging some other part of the brain. So they put in what's called a Richard screw in my head, which just monitors the pressure. And we were lucky enough that the clot clotted on its own. So they didn't have to go in and manually clot the bleed. But obviously my brain had quite a lot of pressure on it, need to heal. So they put me in a coma. They put me on life support tube down my throat to breathe for me, tube up my nose to feed me. And I spent somewhere between three days and a week in a coma and on life support. I don't actually know the exact number of days. Every time I ask, I seem to get a different answer. 
is a blur for everybody yeah when i woke up my hands were tied to the bed because i had all these tubes in and it's terrifying once i kind of started to come out of it i started reaching to try to get this thing out out of my throat but i mean it was breathing for me so my hands were tied and i was coming off morphine which they put me on and when you come off morphine you get really really itchy but i couldn't itch because my hands were tied to the bed but i also couldn't tell anybody where i was itchy because i had a tube down my throat oh no oh that's such a helpless feeling yeah once i was kind of stable enough i was transferred to wascana rehab in regina and i lived at wascana for four months where i did therapy anywhere from two to four times a day just kind of learning trying to retrain my brain how to move the left side of my body but also how to live and get by in the world with only half a functioning body. So at one point, did you lose full function of your left side? Yeah. So when I woke up, I had zero function on the left side of my body to the point that when I smiled, only half of my face went up. And I couldn't roll over in bed because half of my core didn't work. Oh, man, that'd be frustrating. Yeah. And like I even I had a really hard time keeping my mouth closed because mm. now only half the muscles are working yeah. to keep my jaw closed. Oh, man. And swallowing too, right? That's why I was on a feeding tube for a little bit longer than everything else. And then I was on a liquid diet only for a while and kind of slowly progressed from a liquid diet to like a soft food diet. And I think I'd already been in Wascana rehab for a week or two before they started giving me real food. So our sons watched the AMI level playing field documentary that they did on your story. Our oldest son's question was, do you remember falling off the horse And if so, what was it like? And could you rate the pain level? I have a blurry memory of actually falling off the horse. I remember quite clearly waking up and answering my phone. I had like an old Blackberry Pearl. Um, (laughs) Classic. But I remember I felt like I was in a dream. It was the weirdest feeling. There was no pain, despite the fact that apparently I'd broken two of my vertebrae in the back. But there was no pain. But yeah, I felt like I was in this dream. And that's what I told my dad. I said, dad, I don't know what's going on. Like, I feel like I'm in a dream. What's happening? And he was like, Kate Keeley, you're concussed. Don't try to get up. Stay exactly where you are. We'll be right there. I had zero pain whatsoever until I woke up from my coma. It was mostly just because, again, I had these fractured vertebrae. And it's a really weird phenomenon. Nobody really knows why. But it seems that people with brains that are healing get the hiccups a lot. Oh. And the vertebrae that were fractured were between my shoulder blades. Oh. So I would hiccup and it'd be, oh. Ow. Oh, no. Ow. Well, that doesn't seem very My adaptive. one brother, every That's time he would come in to see me, I'd start sneezing for whatever reason. <laughs> And You're that allergic was to excruciating. <laughs> oh, man. Talk about insult on top of injury. Yeah. And I mean, again, I kind of joke that don't feel sorry for me during all of this part. Feel sorry for my parents because I, I was in a coma. I had no pain. Yeah. But my poor parents were sitting there with their youngest and only girl strapped to machines mm-hmm. asking the doctor, should we call her brothers to come say goodbye? Like, what's the deal? Oh, and the doctors pretty much said, I don't know. As parents, mm-hmm. I cannot even imagine. Oh, your poor parents. So Keely, what have you learned in your life from each of your parents? From mom, I would say I really learned how to be independent and and how to not really depend on anybody. My mom is such a hard worker and she's always putting herself last as most mothers do, but still taking the time for herself to make sure that she is the best version of herself so that she can show up for everyone else. Wow. She needs to teach some parenting classes, I think. That sounds like an awesome balance. (laughs) I've really taken that away from her. You know, I've definitely her work ethic and just 
showing up for other people in whatever way they need. That's not always giving advice. That's not always trying to fix something. Sometimes it's just giving you a hug. Mm. And I would say from my dad, I learned one to take no shit and also empathy. Like my dad is such an empathetic person and he's so good at putting things into perspective. I remember always we would, you know, we'd be nine, 10, whatever. And we, something would happen and we think it would be the worst day of our life. And it was something very small. And dad would look at us and say, if this is the worst thing that is going to happen to you today, you're doing pretty well. So really just putting things into perspective and looking at the picture as a whole, as opposed to focusing on that one small thing that really isn't going to matter in Mm. five minutes, let alone five years. Yeah. Beautiful. That's so awesome that you have such a strong family support. You know what? My family is absolutely incredible. I've got two older brothers. So they're four and five years older than me. And of course they teased me. I was their little sister. But when it came down to it, looking back, I'm like, wow, they were fantastic. Like I remember I would be, you know, seven, they were 11 and 12, their friends were over and I was allowed to hang out with their friends. I was allowed to play with them as long as I could keep up, they were going to slow down. But as long as I could keep up, I was allowed to hang out with them. My brothers are my biggest fans. I'll be at a training camp and my oldest brother will text me being like, what sort of times are you doing? Because I just checked out this person and they're doing this sort of time. And in the last competition, this is where you guys stood up. So like, how are you feeling? And what can we do? Like, let's make you go fast. (laughs) That's so cute. (laughs) I told him I had to buy a new road bike in 2019. And he was like, do you need money? Like, I can buy this for you. Aaron, this is so sweet, but I can buy my own bike. Thank you. Uh, the power of family the power of people who believe in you who support you it's huge and you needed that through your story yeah my mom's got nine siblings oh so i have a very large family and especially my mom's family they're all very tight-knit we're in quite close contact with almost all of them they're all so proud of me and they saw me growing up as a ambitious little girl who's just trying to keep up with her brothers they saw me attached to machines They saw me at 80 pounds and now they saw me win a bronze medal. Wow. They've been through it all. They've been through it all right there with me. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what everybody sees is, yeah, they see the bronze medal and that's great. They see everything else that came before too. Yeah. And so now can you share with us a bit more of the 80 pounds? So you survived falling off the horse and you were bouncing back and then what? Yeah. So I fell off my horse again. It was November of 2009 my world was flipped upside down. But I was very fortunate in that I got back to playing hockey quite quickly. So I was discharged from the hospital, I think it was January 30th or February 1st or something. And mid-February, I was back on the ice practicing. I wasn't allowed to play, but I was allowed to practice. At that time, what percentage of function did you have back in your left side? I would say at that point, I was probably about 40 to 50% function in my arm and about 50 to 60% function in my leg. So I was really pretty close to what would become my full recovery. Right now I have on any given day, probably 57 to 60% function in my arm and upper limb and 60 to 65, even 70% function in my leg on days, just depending on a multitude of factors. Mm. So I was pretty close to what would become my full recovery. And that summer I did two or three different power skating camps and hockey camps, really just trying to get back to that hockey player that I was. 
because I, I still wanted to go to university to play hockey. I still wanted to play Olympic hockey. And it was soon very clear that I was not the hockey player that I used to be. Mm-hmm. I went out to try out for my old team, the AA team that I dreamed of and that I played for the year I got hurt and I was cut from the team. Mm. I went from being one of the best female hockey players in my area of my age group to not being able to track the puck. It moves too fast for my brain now. Mm. I can't hold on to my stick very well anymore. I can't do a full stride length with my left leg. And this frustrated me. It didn't matter what I did. I would shoot 100 pucks a day instead of 50. I would go to every single power skating camp. I would put in every ounce of my person into every single second I spent on the ice trying to get back to that hockey player I used to be. And it didn't seem to matter what I did. I could never get back to it. And then one day I remembered thinking back to a provincial team tryout I had gone to. This tryout, I was probably 13 when I was at it. And at this tryout, they had a list of all the girls who were there, their hometown, the team they played for, their birthday, their height and their weight. And I remember going through that list and seeing me and one other girl who were sitting at 130 or so pounds and everybody else was at 115. And like I hit puberty relatively early compared to other girls my age. So I really had just already hit my growth spurt and they hadn't. But to me, that was like, okay, bingo. We're just lose a little bit of weight and that'll be what I need to do to get back to this hockey player, to this high level competitor that I want to be. Mm -hmm. So I started watching my diet and exercising a little bit more. It was fine for a little bit, but if we're being honest, I probably had some disordered eating patterns even before I got hurt, but then everything just snowballed after I got hurt and I worked so much harder at it and it became an obsession. And suddenly people were telling me about how great I looked lost five pounds and oh you look so great Mm. well if I look great five pounds lighter then let's do it and it was 10 pounds lighter the next thing I knew I was 85 pounds obviously the people around me were very aware that things were not okay I mean I'd gone from 130 pounds to 80 pounds in a matter of months were people still telling you that you looked great at 80 pounds at 80 pounds people were still telling me how fantastic I looked again we were aware that this wasn't okay so it was mandated that I see a counselor which, okay, but I didn't want to be there. I was not getting out of it what I could have because I was not ready to be there. But we had this deal between me and my counselor. She would never weigh me as long as I went in for weekly weigh-ins at our local manor with a nurse overseeing me before I went to see her for the week. So I played the system really well. I would show up in winter boots and leggings underneath of jeans, underneath of sweatpants, and the biggest, bulkiest belt I had, I would put back a liter of water 10 minutes before I went in for this weigh-in so that I was always above this threshold that they had for me. And then one week I forgot to do my weigh-in. So according to our goal, she was allowed to weigh me. And when she weighed me, I was 85 pounds. I was admitted immediately to the hospital and my heart rate was 30 beats per minute. So for reference right now at the peak of my fitness, having just won an Olympic medal, my resting heart rate, the lowest it will ever go for a brief moment overnight is about 49 beats per minute. So awake and walking, I was at 30 beats per minute. My body was literally shutting down. Mm -hmm. Did you feel that? Like, did you feel fatigued? Oh, I was always exhausted. I had no energy ever, but I didn't think anything of it. There wasn't enough focus left in my mind to Mm. even think about that. I was too worried about food Mm. and weight and what I could do to be a gram lighter the next day. So how did you dig yourself out of that? After I was hospitalized in the like quote unquote regular hospital they kind of stabilized me well enough they gave me ivs they gave me fluids what have you and then i was transferred to the psychiatric institution in the town over 
and I was there for 12 weeks maybe. But the issue with when I was there is they addressed the weight, but they never actually took the time to figure out why. Like it is not a normal thing to struggle to put back 200 calories in a day. But nobody took the time to figure out why the simple act of eating food gave me such crippling anxiety. So I once again played their game. I did what I needed to do. I got to this magic weight that they told me I needed to be at for them to release me. And I went on with my life. And so at that point, I was heavy enough. I think I'd gotten up to like 125 pounds, which for me was an all right size. But I still needed that control over something. So every time anything went remotely wrong in my life, I would start over-exercising. I would start restricting again. And then when I went to university, when I was 18, and now, of course, anybody knows the first year of university can be very, very stressful. I was in Halifax on the other side of the country from where I grew up. And now I had a gym at my disposal 24-7. I was one of thousands of students in the meal hall. So I figured nobody's going to notice if I eat what I eat, if I eat. So I relapsed first year of university and I got down to, I think, about 80 pounds. And when I got home, my parents gave me an ultimatum. They pretty much said, you need to be at a certain weight or at least trending up or we're not going to pay for university. At this point, I wanted to be a lawyer. And I mean, university is relatively important for somebody who wants to be a lawyer. Yeah. So I was ordered essentially to go to this inpatient eating disorder weekend retreat thing. So I spent my 19th birthday at a weekend retreat for eating disorders. How memorable. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, it might be the most memorable of all my birthdays. (laughs) And at the moment, I didn't see the value of it. But looking back, I think I had an epiphany, or at least I have an epiphany now looking back at that time. Because on the last day, all of us who were there, we were in this, it was almost like a sharing circle. I like to think Mm. of it as the kumbaya circle. (laughs) And they would go around and they'd ask, tell us your story. Yeah what brought you here? It's a powerful question. And so we're going around and I'm hearing these awful stories of abuse and neglect and these awful traumas that it breaks Mm -hmm. your heart just to hear, even if you don't know the person. And it came to my turn and I I said, pass. Mm. Because in my head, I was thinking, what's wrong with you? These people have been through the worst that life can offer. No wonder they're struggling. What's your issue? Like, Mm. yeah, sure. You fell off your horse, but you're fine. You've got a loving family. You've never been raped. You've never been abused. Why are you like this? I honestly thought that I did not deserve an eating disorder. And it wasn't that I thought, why does this happen to me? It was a, you are not good enough for this. And so again, I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back in the last year or so, it kind of hit me. Mm -hmm. And now I'm like, what an awful mentality. Like how sick do you have to be for that to be your first Mm -hmm. cognitive thought When people ask you to share your story. The comparative suffering trap. Yeah. But, you know, I went on, knew that going to university was very important for my life goals. So I hit that magic number and I teetered on this line of being hospitalized or not being sick enough so that I could essentially get what I wanted. So going through university, still over-exercising, still purging, still restricting, but making sure that I stay just on the right side of where things can continue to go down the path that I had envisioned. And then one day I was working out at the university and a fellow student came up to me and said, hey, I heard the story about your brain injury. I've seen the way you move. I think you might be classifiable for para sport. And she goes on to tell me about all these great perks, you know, 
You can get paid to do sport. You get to travel the world. You'll get coaches. You'll get support. You get this awesome swag. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, if, if you're interested, come with me to see my sports scientist. Like he'll be able to tell you if you're classifiable. And it was like this light bulb went off in my head. It was like, I can continue to do sport. I can be an athlete. I kind of thought that that part of my identity went away when I got hurt. So I went to see her sports scientist and he essentially said, you're definitely classifiable. Pick a sport. Mm. It was December when I went to see him. So I was like, oh, let's try cross country skiing. We had a coach in the area and oh my goodness, was I bad. It was so cold. (laughs) It was so hard. I was so slow and it was not fun. At this point, I'd been commuting back and forth to the university by bike. And if we're being perfectly honest, I think I was using it as a way to build more exercise and more calorie expenditure into my daily life, into my routine that nobody could bother me for. Mm. And I was like, well, I've already got a bike. I probably won't have to move anywhere to train. I can train on my own. It's an individual sport, whatever. So I started quote unquote training on this $200 steel frame Canadian tire bike. Remember the first time I went out, I was like, however long in, I was like, I've got to be at least 20 K. I looked at my GPS now, like 11 kilometers in. I was like, oh my God, this is the hardest sport I've ever done in my life. (laughs) But I kept going. I got up to like a 20K ride, which I thought was a real big deal, which is comical now, given that I race 80K races. But um, Gotta start somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, you got to start somewhere. And then when I finished my undergraduate degree in 2016, I bought myself an actual good road bike as a graduation present to myself. And if anybody's ever had a like not so awesome heavy steel bike and then they get on a good bike... It is a completely different sport. It is so much more fun when you have a bike that works with you instead of against you. So I started training more, getting up to, you know, 50, 60 kilometer rides, which is great. And then in 2017, in the spring, I decided it was time to try my hand at an actual bike race. I signed up for Moose Jaw Classic in small town Saskatchewan. And I went out and I did the race. I did their time trial, their road race and their criterium. And it was the best weekend that I could think of in my life up to that point. I finally felt like an athlete again. Like I loved every single aspect of it. The people were so friendly and everybody was cheering and we were working so hard. I loved it. So as soon as I got back from that race, I emailed the Canadian Paralympic Committee and I pretty much found every single email I could on the Paralympic Committee's website. And I said, hey, I have a brain injury and I like to bike. Where can I go from here? (laughs) They put me in touch with the Cycling Canada Next Gen coach. And we exchanged a couple of emails and he was like, Hey, I've got this next gen training camp in Quebec. Why don't you come out? So I never actually even talked to him on the phone, but I found myself on a plane going out to Quebec for this training camp. And at training camp, he said, you want to race at nationals? And I was like, okay. Oh, oh, (laughs) I guess. I mean, if you think I'm competitive. So I went out to nationals and I got two bronze medals, which is sweet until you know that there was only three people in my race. So I got two bronze medals. Nobody has to know that. You just got two bronze medals. (laughs) I got two bronze medals. But I remember sitting there thinking, what am I doing here? Like, what did you think? Who do do you think you are? You've been racing bikes for three months and you're at nationals. You can't ride with these girls. These girls are getting ready to go to world championships the next week. Like, what were you thinking? So again, going down this Mm -hmm. self-deprecating comparative route. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of self-compassion there. But I guess the national coaches thought a little bit different than I did. And they said, we want to get you officially classified. Mm -hmm. And the next opportunity to do that is track world championships next Mm -hmm. March. So I had about six months and they said, let's put you on a track and see what happens. The first time I came out to a track camp, 
I rode on the trainer for pretty much three days before they actually let me get on the track. And when I did, it was love at first sight. Like I did my first effort, which is what we call a flying 500. So you kind of make your way to the very, very top of the track and you dive down to the lowest part of the track and you do two laps as fast as you possibly can. And I went with zero abandon, like completely reckless, just seeing how fast I could get that bike going. And I fell in love. When I got back to Saskatoon the next week, my coach messaged me. He was like, seeing you on that track was a treat. Mm -hmm. I think they saw the light in my eyes and they were like, let's go to Worlds. Oh, wow. To remind the listeners, what is, is it a 40 degree angle? Is that the angle of the track? It depends on the track. Our track in Canada, in Milton, I believe it's a 43 degree angle. Okay. So pretty steep is what you're diving down fearlessly. (laughs) With no brakes and no gears on your bike. (laughs) I just want people to understand that this is bananas. Okay, carry on. Now, now Worlds. It's pretty wild. At Worlds, I had a really bad first race in the time trial, the 500 meter time trial. Once again, what am I doing here? Who do you think you are that you can be at World Championships racing against the best in the world? That was my first race. I still had a pursuit to do. So I got on the line. This was probably like the 10th time I had ever been on a cycling track for my world championship individual pursuit. I did a PB by about four seconds. And when I finished my qualifier, I was sitting in first. I ended up fifth and I ended up being three seconds slower than the bronze medal winner. And I couldn't stop smiling. Mm -hmm. I honestly don't think the smile left my face for like five years. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think it has yet, but it was honestly four hours of just beaming. And I kind of started to feel like myself again. Like Mm. I I found that athlete in me that I thought I had lost when I was 15. And suddenly I had this thing that I cared about more than I cared about restricting my food and about controlling my food. So on days when I had no interest in putting anything in my mouth, it was, no, you've got intervals to do tomorrow morning. If you don't eat now, you're never going to be able to finish this workout. You've got to do a two hour ride tomorrow. If you don't bring food to eat on the bike, you're not going to be able to hit your power output. And slowly I was able to break the cognitive cycle of control and the cognitive cycle of you don't deserve to eat. I'm never going to tell you, or at least at this point that I've beaten anorexia and that I no longer have an issue because Mm -hmm. there are hard days, but it's waking up every day and making the decision that this voice in my head doesn't control my life. This is a part of my life, but it is not all of my life. And there are so many other things in my life that I have going for me that this is just going to get in the way of. Mm -hmm. And again, I think at this point, I am in a well enough mindset that cycling isn't necessarily the thing that's keeping me in remission, if you can call it that. But it's definitely the thing that got me on the path. Beautiful. Awesome. What have you learned about yourself and the world through these two adversities through the brain injury and struggles with disordered eating? I would say first and foremost, the biggest thing I learned is I am so much more than what I do. And I am not worthy as a human being because I'm a hockey player, because I'm a cyclist, because I am the valedictorian. I am inherently worthy of being a human being. And these are just things that make up who I am, but they are not the soul of who I am. Beautiful. I remember when, before I got hurt and hockey was my number one focus, Honestly, I had probably a really unhealthy relationship with hockey because hockey was top of the priority list and then family, friends, school, everything else came below it, which is not a good place to be because when it was taken away from me, I crashed and burned really hard. 
Do you remember when we first met Keely at the airport? Yes. I was asking a little more about you and he said that you were on his paracycling team and I was like, excuse me, what para? So I feel like you and Lowell are in a similar boat in that you have invisible disabilities. Unless, of course, it's after a race and, and you're having a hard time moving your leg. But walking through the airport, I had no idea. Do you feel that, for better or for worse, that you have an invisible disability? People don't know. It's really funny when I tell people that I'm a paracyclist because one of two things happen. Either I get some variety of, but what's wrong with you? <laughs> or some more politically correct version thereof. Yeah. <laughs> Or I can see them kind of back up and that the wheels in their brain turning, trying to be like... They're scanning you full body. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And if you don't know what to look for, you're right. I appear to be quote unquote normal. But sometimes my arm, it's a little bit more obvious because I don't really use my left hand, mostly because I can't. Um, and when I get tired, I kind of hold my arm in such a way that it looks like I've hurt my arm. Oh. And I've had multiple people be like, oh, what's wrong with your arm? What did you do to it? And I'm like, oh, it's not my arm. It's my brain. Thanks, though. <laughs> oh, man. So speaking of identities, you have multiple of those. And one of the important ones in your life is as an academic. Yeah. So I am a graduate student at the University of Saskatchewan in the College of Kinesiology. I did my master's degree there as well. My master's thesis was looking at how dark chocolate impacts cycling performance at altitude. So yes, I do have the coolest <laughs> master's dissertation of anybody in any discipline across the world. I do. Do you prefer dark chocolate to milk chocolate? Absolutely, I do. Oh, I wish I did. I, I mean, I'll still be part of your study if you're looking for people. <laughs> I always have a little bit of chocolate with me. I brought my own chocolate with me from Milton. I've got a little bag of chocolate on my bedside stand here to have with my coffee. Chocolate and coffee. Have you been to Australia? They have a coffee museum. You pay your entry fee and then you get unlimited samples of coffee and chocolate. That sounds like my kind of place. Just a little little tip. Don't go on an empty stomach. I thought, I'm going to get my money's worth. But I'm going to go on an empty stomach and really fill up. I felt so sick after and I was shaking, so jittery. Oh. Anyways, but yeah, you definitely should put that on your bucket list. I'll make sure to add it right after this because I think that might be the coolest place I've ever been. Yeah, yeah. Cairns, <laughs> Northern, Northern Australia. Don't take it. Yeah. So academics, right? Pursuing excellence, trying to balance that at the same time as being an elite athlete. There's lots going on for you. Yeah, there is. My husband once joked because I say that I'm 27 years old and I've never had a real job. And he looked at me, he was like, Keely, your job is to be exceptional. Aww. You don't get paid to ride your bike. You don't get paid to try really hard on your bike. You get paid to perform on your bike. You get paid not to read research articles or to like just learn about things you get paid to come up with your own questions do very valuable research and while these two things yes they're both a lot but they're so intertwined I mean my research area is sport nutrition exercise physiology and my specific niche is for special populations namely female masters and Paralympic athletes well I fall into two of those three niche areas <laughs> so it's really easy for me to balance them because they're so intertwined also, I function best when I'm quite busy. So having both of these things give me an out and a break from them individually. 
So yes, a lot of grad students will find glued to their computer screen for six, eight hours a day. Well, I can't do that because I need to get out for a two, three, four hour bike ride in the middle of the day. When COVID hit and all of a sudden we have no races on the calendar, I could have sat there and stewed because the Paralympics are questionable at this point. But I was able to really shift my focus and do some research and do some coursework and pass my comprehensive exam. Wow. So by distributing my energy and my right now identity between these two things, I think it really helps me to create a little bit more balance in my life. And I'm just very fortunate that on both sides, the academic and the sports side, my support teams are so understanding. Yeah. Your husband sounds amazing, by the way. How long have you been married? We were married in August of 2017. So what's that? Four years? Oh, wow. He must be pretty bummed. He can't be cheering you on in Tokyo. Hey. He is, but he had some friends over and he had two different screens going with the races just in case one of them cut out. (laughs) Well, he'll get to see you in Paris. So, Mm -hmm. you know. Yes, that's right. (laughs) What do you appreciate most about Andrew? I take it Andrew's your husband's name. Yes. (laughs) Andrew is my husband. Insider information. (laughs) There's so many things to pinpoint is hard, but I would say... Andrew is so selfless and so encouraging. So it takes a special person, as I'm sure Julie can appreciate, to be all right with your significant other taking off for one, two, four, five weeks at a time to pursue a dream that is ultimately very selfish. And I mean, Julie, you've got the kids, Andrew's got the dogs, which we essentially treat as our children. (laughs) As you should. (laughs) And yeah, it takes a very special person to not only be okay with that, but to support it wholeheartedly. Uh. He's on your team, hey? Biggest supporter, of course. Amazing. We need the supports. Yeah, because again, as Lola, you know, elite sport is ultimately a selfish endeavor. It feels selfish when you're away for however long and you see what's going on with your family back home. It's like, well, yeah, I would like to be there, but right now I'm here and this is what I need to do. You said that it's selfish, but I don't I don't necessarily think it's that selfish because you guys are showing other people who may find themselves in positions that you are, what they are capable of, what they could be capable of. You guys give people hope. I think that's huge. I love that. I love that perspective because it definitely feels selfish when it's, sorry, Andrew, there are two weeks in the year that we can ever go on holidays without a bike because I need to train all the time. And sorry, Andrew, I know you want to go out for sushi tonight, but I've got to work out tomorrow. So I need to have this very specific meal. (laughs) I can see how you could see it from that perspective, but I think it's bigger than that, especially now that you're on a world stage and you're kind of an international phenomenon now. I don't know that I would go so far (laughs) as say international. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You got a bronze medal on the world stage. All the countries heard your name (laughs) and saw you, especially Australia. (laughs) Yeah. They love you, I'm sure. (laughs) Mention that when you go to the coffee museum. Yeah. (laughs) So that that sense, though, inside of you of acknowledging it, we we need that. A little bit of guilt, that feeling. We don't want to take that away because then we just go off the rails with selfishness. When we have that sense, it's like a guardrail that brings us, when we get too close to this, we need to know, okay, I need to dial this back and bring it back to family, make sure that there are those moments that I am taking time for the family, for the kids when I have that, that I'm fully, wholly present when I am around. And so we're not going off the rails on, on being completely selfish and living our lives. So that even the, the self-awareness that you have to acknowledge and state that feeling, that's, that's good and powerful. And, we and don't your gratitude for Andrew. I didn't know I was getting a therapy session today. <laughs> um, Again, I think because I had that more unhealthy relationship where sport was my one and only Mm -hmm. focus when I was younger, 
I've really been trying to pay attention that when I'm home, I am home. Yeah. And then when you're away, you're stoking hope. Yeah. You're flaming the fires of passion. You're flaming people's dreams and hopes in them, right? Showing that there's possibility after adversity. Like there's some kid that maybe just fell off their horse that was like, hey, look, she just got a Paralympic medal. Like maybe I can turn this into something. If anything comes out of my sporting career, I hope it's that. Because I wasn't introduced to parasport at all until that day in the gym when the fellow student came up to me. Whereas I think if somebody would have even put that bug in my brain when I was in rehab, Mm -hmm. maybe I would have had the mental strength to forego the mental health issues I had. Mm. Or when I was diagnosed with anorexia, had I known of anybody or seen any stories maybe I would have been able to identify a little bit more with it yeah. as opposed to just feeling like I was alone in this world yeah. and nobody knew what I was going through. You didn't have a North star. You didn't have that why to pull you, but now knowing that it's about helping others, what would you tell others, girls, boys, those who've come through adversity, struggles, obstacles, what would you tell them? Somebody who's in that, in the throes, that darkness. First of all, I would tell them that it will get better. It's going to take every single ounce of everything they've got, but it will get better and they will get through it. And that they really just need to find something that they're passionate about that they feel that they're proficient in. And I always say, chase it with a reckless abandon. Like I threw out a Hail Mary pass to the Paralympic Committee being like, I want to ride my bike. And now I have a bronze medal around my neck. Mm. I would say, don't be scared to ask other people for help. Don't be scared to ask for what you need. Mm -hmm. The worst that's going to happen is they're going to say no. And then you can just pick up and try again. Awesome. You're an inspiration. Words are important. And so we have this segment that we do that's the word bird. Homage to Fred Penner and his word bird. And I'm just going to throw it. And this could be rapid fire. or We might ask a bit of a follow-up. On these words, what do they mean to you? Okay. Okay, you ready? Ready. First word suffering the precursor to greatness nice what i would say on your behalf is lifestyle <laughs> this is very true <laughs> i was once told that i'm good at riding bikes because i like to suffer <laughs> makes sense yeah. you kind of have, to, yeah, you kinda have to like that in cycling right there's there's not a lot of success it never gets easier right it always hurts in fact the better you get the more it hurts because once you find your dark place you can get there a lot more often and it really hurts and as Lola always says it never gets easier you just get stronger so you're like always pushing and he's still riding like sometimes three to four hours in the heat wave in our garage which does not have air conditioning that sounds awful good on you I was doing Tokyo heat acclimation (laughs) for nothing (laughs) next word um we've already alluded to this one but yeah rapid fire version chocolate happiness Uh, followed up by caffeine necessary yeah (laughs) next word teamwork Makes the dream work. Nice. We got a good team. Again, I'm so fortunate. Cycling is technically an individual sport, but it's really not. It's the coaches, the dietitians, the teammates, the mental trainers, the support system that really get that bike across the line. Do you have a little shout out for Cycling Canada right now? Oh, everyone at Cycling Canada, Emily O'Connor, Seb, Guillaume, Frank, they've all been so gracious with their time, with their expertise to get me to where I am. Absolutely. It takes a team. Next word, fatigue. Oh, that's a tough one. Say fatigue is not my friend. (laughs) When I'm tired, the left side of my body kind of just stops working. Mm. 
So that's also probably why caffeine is necessary. Um, I try to be very diligent about napping when necessary, getting about eight and a half to 10 hours of sleep every night. Yes, I'm a grad student who gets 10 hours of sleep a night. Makes even more brilliant. That's what I keep telling myself. Next word, speed. Fun. <laughs> I just want to go fast, Ricky Bobby. I just want to go fast. just want to go fast. Next word, injury. I have a mixed relationship with my injury. I think it's led to me to where I am today. It's given me the opportunity to compete on the world's biggest stage. That being said, if I could go back and change it, would I? Questionable. Depends on the day. Most days I would say no, because again, it's led me to so many amazing people, including you, Lowell and Julie. <laughs> it's led me to the world's biggest stage and it really helped me to learn who I was. So I guess maybe a better way to answer that is, can you be grateful while still not being grateful? Because that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. It's a dialectic. Both are true. Yes. Yeah. Can I have those experiences without having the injury? <laughs> can I please have the resilience without any pain? No, sorry. <laughs> <Please>. <laughs> Yeah. All the resilience, no struggle, if possible. Yeah. <laughs> that would be excellent. Balance. Critical. It's only when I can take care of myself that I can show up for others. And balance is the only way I can do that. Mm -hmm. And balance also means something very different after a race and when you're fatigued. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot more challenging after a race. <laughs> we all, we're quite the crew when we're cruising around and we're all fatigued after a race. I'm walking into windows and doors and people are falling over and <laughs> we're all helping each yeah, other out. All, some of us are just like shaking. Some people are just like being carried. It's, it's quite the scene. Determination. Determination. It's a necessary characteristic to a happy life. No matter what you're doing, sports, academics, your regular job, your family, if you're not determined to do something, you're not going to show up to your best ability. Mm -hmm. I was going to say Keely's middle name. <laughs> My middle name's actually Allison, but we can oh, go with that. It kind of said Allison, Allison determination. determination. It ends the same. <laughs> I've felt that from you since the first time I met you. I believe we met in Emmen in Netherlands yeah. the first time. 2018. In 2018, we met in Amsterdam and then took that vehicle to Emmen. And just like meeting you for the first time, your smile, your exuberance, but also your determination. And from then till now, seeing that you exude that and it's, it is inspiring and you're an amazing teammate. Oh, thank you. You're also an amazing teammate. I love our talks. We have such good talks. We do bar. have good talks. <laughs> we do have good talks. Hopefully there'll be more of those in the future. <laughs> yeah. Paris, but first you got to get through Tokyo. Next word, animals. Animals are such a huge part of my life. Grew up on the farm. I had pet geese, pet ducks, chickens, horses, what have you. The dogs are essentially our children. I just am going to start volunteering with the wildlife rescue in Saskatoon. Animals are such a huge part of my life and they just fill my heart. Yeah. You can't watch a duck and be upset. It's impossible. They're too goofy. <laughs> yeah. They shape our life in a lot of ways. It's, it's amazing. Sport and animals. Switching gears, pun intended. Next word, weakness. I don't believe in weakness. It's all just strengths that are yet to be developed. Nice. And last word, identity. Identity is fluid. It depends on where you are in life and you need to be ready for that to change and embrace the person you're going to become. Because if you're the same person you were 10 years ago, I don't think you're living your best life. Yeah. You are a wise woman, Keely Shaw. Our youngest son has asked a question. He said, have you ever crashed? I usually have about one good crash a year for being honest. My very first international road race, I crashed at like 20 kilometers in and then fought like a mad woman and caught back up with the pack with five kilometers to go crashed again oh, no. broke my collarbone got back on my bike and finished the 5k of the race with a broken collarbone 
Oh my word. Okay. That is why your middle name is determination. Yes. Broke my hand when I crashed my bike in March of 2020. I hit the last patch of ice in Saskatoon. Oh man. Do you have any causes or organizations you want to plug? I'm a big fan of the rescue organizations for animals. I volunteer with New Hope Dog Rescue. Both of my pups are New Hope alumni. I fostered with New Hope. We try to participate in as many fundraisers as we can. We don't foster anymore because I keep adopting them. <laughs> um, Living Sky Wildlife Rescue, I'll be working with once I get back from Tokyo. So any local animal shelter, there's an app for anybody who likes walking or running. It's called Rescue Apps, and it's completely free. You pick the rescue, whether it's a humane society or some independent rescue. And when you walk and track your walks, they'll donate money to those rescues. Oh, wow. That's really cool. So you can be active and support the animals. Exactly. And I know that it actually, like, they actually get money because the rescue that I volunteer with uses it. And like, we've been able to see how much money has been raised. Oh, that's so cool. Awesome. So can confirm that it's legit. Wonderful. I want to acknowledge you, Keely, for the effort, the passion that you put in for being an amazing teammate, for what you've done for our sport, your authenticity, your vulnerability to speak about your disordered eating, your struggles that are coming through. And now you are a Paralympic medalist and that's going to shape the path forward. So we are so proud of you. And can't wait to hang out again in person and, and race bikes together again. And we're so grateful that you took the time to chat with us while you're in Tokyo. And we're very proud of you and your representation of Canada. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate you giving me this platform to share my story. Because as I mentioned, if my story can help even one person get out of some of those deep, dark times, it's been worth it. Absolutely. Okay, rest well. Yeah. Race your heart out. You've already got the medal. Now just have fun. Soak in this experience. Thanks so much, guys. I can't wait till we can be back on bikes together. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. Talk fun. to you soon. <laughs> Bye. Bye, Keely. Good luck. Oh, oh actually, oh, Julie what? wanted a oh, picture. Uh, do you have your medal with you by chance? Yeah, I sure do. Okay. okay. Thank good memory, Lol. They're so heavy. Oh, look at that. It's beautiful. Oh, wow. Holy. Got rail. Oh, I love oh, it. I love that with the pair of medals. That's so cool. Wow, that is beefy. You have enough room in your bike? You're going to, yeah, too heavy. To I'm going to go home. over weight on my bag. <laughs> That's the best reason ever to go overweight on your bag. Yeah, I'm okay with it. I'll pay the fee. Yeah. Oh, if no. anybody made you pay the fee, Canadian, are you kidding Canadian me? Canadian Paralympics is paying for that fee. Yeah. <laughs> or like just all of Canada in general. Just post about it. People would probably start a yeah. GoFundMe. <laughs> pay for Keely's overweight luggage. Yes. <laughs> oh, awesome. Okay, good memory, Lola. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to get that in. So thank you. That's beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. Nice to nice to meet your medal. And we look forward to welcoming you We'll do a show and back. tell sometime soon. Yeah. Yes. Oh, we look forward to it. Yeah. Wow. It's so pretty. Yeah. Not uh, as pretty as you, but it's pretty. My heart is full. My heart is full for you. Amazing. Thank you. Aw, awesome. Enjoy. Well, thanks again for taking the time, Keely. Thanks, guys. Have a great evening. Yeah, you too. We'll be cheering for you. Bye. Bye. Keely Shaw. You look so proud right now. Yeah. <laughs> like you look as though she's your sister. I'm happy. I, I know. Seeing her journey we started together and all of the expectation and hopes and dreams and ups and downs and um, she was on the cusp too and just trying to get into the games and it's it's not easy it's not just hey show up and you're going to get to the games and Keely made it and she pushed really really deep and she got Canada's first medal that's really really cool so cool 
So I'm super proud, though I have nothing to do with her journey, but <laughs> I do really appreciate our teammates and the Cycling Canada staff, everybody who makes this happen. She's very helpful. She's guided me before to make sure I don't walk into doors and windows uh, and then do the travel. So yeah. You guys look after each other. We take care of each other and we make sure everybody's okay. If you're interested in more incredible stories like Keeley's, we've done episodes with other athletes currently at the Tokyo Paralympic Games. Paracyclist Tristan Chernov is episode 10. Wheelchair rugby player turned coach David Wilsey is episode 12. Sitting volleyball player Peyton Vare is episode 16. Paratriathlete Stefan Daniel is episode 23. And 19-time Paralympic medalist Stephanie Dixon, who is the current chef de mission in Tokyo, was our first episode. So many incredible stories, amazing teammates, so many lessons that can be learned. And again, Keely's lessons that she's learned through her injury, through the struggles afterwards, seeking meaning, trying to find her way through, struggling to find control, going towards an eating disorder, and then finding her way through to more stability through all the amazing supports and channeling it through sport. And now to be giving back, to be helping so many other people. This was an honor to speak to her while she's there in between her races in Tokyo. Okay, Keely's Instagram handle is at KeelyShaw10, and the Twitter handle is at KeelyShaw14. So K-E-E-L-Y-S-H-A-W-14. And since she's such a big deal now, she's verified on both of those. <laughs> awesome. Well, good luck, Keely. Thanks again for taking the time to chat with us. Until we race again, Keely, see you on the other side. Love you guys. Bye. Bye.